With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose a new sports book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is baseball historian Rob Fitz. We are discussing his new book, Bonsai Babe Ruth, Baseball, Espionage, and Assassination during the 1934 Tour of Japan published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2012. The 1934 Japanese tour by a team of American All-Stars is one of the great colorful stories in baseball history. The team included such legends of the game as Jimmy Fox, Lou Gehrig, and manager Connie Mack. But the main attraction of the tour was Babe Ruth. Ruth was coming to the end of his career as a player but he was still, by far, the biggest star in baseball. And Japanese fans were eager to see him hit his trademark home runs. They mobbed him at every stop on the tour, shouting, Banzai Babe Ruth. In looking at the reception Ruth received in Japan, we can see him as a forerunner to today's international sports stars. People like Kobe Bryant and Lionel Messi who are celebrated around the world for their athletic talent. But what is striking in Rob Fitt's portrayal of Ruth is how openly and enthusiastically he played the role of a world-famous sports star. Babe Ruth returned from Japan with great affection for the country and its people. Consequently, seven years later, he was deeply angered and even personally offended by the attack on Pearl Harbor. One of the strengths of Rob's book is that he weaves together these two stories, the enthusiastic welcome that the American baseball players received in Japan, and parallel to that, the rising currents of militarism and nationalism that eventually led to war. As Rob explains at the start of the interview, his aim as a researcher and writer is to introduce readers to Japanese culture by exploring the history of baseball in that nation. He does this in a lively and engaging way with his book. I think you'll enjoy our interview. My guest today on New Books and Sports is Rob Fitz. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Bruce. So I'll ask first about your background. Uh, You have a doctorate in anthropology with training specifically in archaeology and uh, your early academic work looked at colonial and 19th century American history. So what led you from those areas of academic interest to your interest in Japanese baseball? Um, well, actually, it's all my wife's fault. My wife was, <laughs> yeah, I blame her for everything. Um, my wife was a Japanese major in college. She had spent a year as an AFS student in uh, high school. And she was fluent in Japanese by the time she graduated college, and uh, she went on to law school, and her law firm sent her to uh, go to Japan in 1993 for what we thought was a short legal deal. And uh, it ended up, uh, after her spending three weeks there, I got a phone call saying, uh, how'd you like to come to Japan? And I said, yeah, that'd be okay for a week or two. And she's like, nah, we went more like a year or two. And... Um, so I packed up my bags, I brought along a lot of my books on archaeology, and we moved to Japan for two years. 
And uh, during that time, I was still uh, working on my Ph.D. in archaeology. But I spent a lot of time um, learning about Japanese baseball. It was a way I... Uh, baseball became a method for me to get used to Japan, to uh, indoctrinate myself into the culture, into the language. So I went to a lot of baseball games. I met a lot of Americans and Japanese who were interested in baseball and talked to them about the game. I searched Tokyo looking for Japanese baseball cards and old memorabilia, and I even played on a Japanese company team. So by the time we came back in 1994, I really kind of fell in love with the Japanese game and uh, kept that up for a hobby for almost 10 years as I was an archaeologist. And finally, doing research on my hobby and writing about my hobby became more interesting to me in my career. So I did a career switch and uh, started writing full-time about Japanese baseball. So this is now your third book about Japanese baseball, correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. All right. So what led you to to research and write about the, the 1934 tour? Well, the 34 tour book actually didn't start out as my idea. Um, about 10 years ago or so, we formed um, the Asian Baseball Research Committee of the Society of American Baseball Research. And we came up, uh, we wanted to have a project where we could all work together. And we met at this Tokyo restaurant, which just had the worst food I've ever had in Tokyo. <laughs> I mean, Tokyo is like New York or Paris. I mean, you can't go wrong with a restaurant, or so I thought. But this one... Um, we met at this horrible restaurant and talked about what we should do. And I thought we should uh, write a book about the tours in general. But I was overruled, and the people suggested 34 tour. And uh, we did that for about a month, and then basically everybody went their own way and returned to their own projects, and the project died. And about five years after that, I started thinking about it, thinking, you know, maybe I should look into that. A 34 tours probably one of the most important baseball events in Japanese history. Uh, because of Babe Ruth going over there in 34, uh, Japanese was able to turn pro in 35. So I started doing background research. And um, because my books, I use baseball and I use history together. I feel that baseball is a way to introduce history and culture of foreign countries to uh, American readers. So I do a lot of background research about the times when I write a baseball book. And I'm reading a biography of Tojo, the eventual war minister of Japan, and I came across this one sentence and then a footnote saying there was an attempted coup d'etat in November 1934, and then the book moved on. And all of a sudden, you know, not a, a light bulb, but a strobe light goes off in my brain. It's like, November 34 is right when Babe Ruth's in Japan. I've never read this. What's going on here? And I thought, now this is a story. So... The next, I read it uh, on vacation, and the next day when I got back to New York, I went straight to the public library and started digging. And sure enough, right in the middle of the 1934 baseball tour, there's an attempted coup d'etat on the Japanese government. So I started focusing on that as my um, plot for my 1934 book, Bon Fide where part of the book follows these group of military officers who plan to overthrow the Japanese government by... Um, invading the parliament when it's in session and machine gunning the civilian government and then taking control of the country. The other part of the book follows the baseball players as they went on their goodwill uh, mission to bring about uh, better relations between Japan and, uh, and the United States. And of course, these two stories collide somewhere in the middle of the book. Now, uh, obviously, Babe Ruth survived. There was not a bloody coup d'etat, and the uh, Ruth was never under fire. But the book talks about um, this real threat that was thwarted by the Japanese military police at the last minute, and what might have happened had this um, the coup d'etat actually come about. It might have been civil war in Japan right in the middle of the baseball tour. So let's get some background for those who are unfamiliar with Japanese baseball. How and when did the sport become popular in Japan? As most people know, Japan was a closed country until the late 1850s. And then Commodore Perry came over with the so-called uh, black ships and, uh, and opened up the country to trade. In the, with the next 10 years, Japan realized it was still a medieval country and needed to catch up with Europe. And they imported experts uh, from all over the world to teach them about modern ways. 
And among these people they imported were American teachers. Um, and these teachers traveled to Japan, and in their luggage they often brought baseball bats and balls. And they taught the game to Japanese students in the 1870s. And by the 1880s, uh, Japan had its own leagues, its own clubs. They were playing both at the schools and also adults were playing. Um, and by 1900, it was by far the most popular game in Japan, with thousands coming to top uh, schoolboy games. So the game really takes off, and they have many, many different weekly magazines just dedicated to baseball. And some of these focused um, on Major League Baseball. So when the ballplayers came over there in 34, and when earlier teams came over, the Japanese fans knew exactly who they were. They knew who Earl Averill was and um, Charlie Geringer. I mean, everybody knew who Babe Ruth was. That's a given. But they even knew who the lesser superstars were in the United States. Um, so this was a real big event for them to see the baseball at its height in Japan. So as an anthropologist, you, and you talked about when you were living in Japan, you'd, you'd uh, uh, scour for baseball cards and baseball memorabilia. What did, what did you find in terms of the material culture of, of baseball in Japan in, say, the 20s and 30s, in terms of how it, how it appeared in the popular press and, and so forth? Well, first of all, the material from prior to World War II is very rare. Um, as you probably know, Japan was uh, flattened during World War II, especially the, the cities like Tokyo. Um, so very little of it survives, and it's highly sought after by collectors, both Americans living there and also Japanese. So it was really unusual to find anything more than, say, a magazine here and there um, that dated before the war. Um, very few baseball cards, for example. Um, but when you do look at the magazines and when you do see the baseball cards, um, you can understand how popular it is. Um, they didn't have pro ball until 1936. So the earlier baseball cards are of college or high school players, and they're still out there. I mean, I don't, I can't think of too many examples in the Amer of uh, baseball cards in the United States that focus on college players, um, certainly not during the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So it was... Um, very already a commercial uh, game, even though it was played at the amateur level. There were uh, the superstars from college and high school were already being sought after by the media uh, back in the 20s and 30s. So it was a lot more akin to um, college basketball is here today. So you mentioned that there was not professional baseball until until 1936. So so why was that? How was the structure different in in Japan as opposed to in the United States? Um, the Japanese, when baseball started coming over in the 1870s uh, and 80s, they didn't have any team sports of their own, and the only real sports they had were the martial arts. So they incorporated baseball kind of into the martial arts. They approached it with a martial arts mentality, uh, with a focus on practice, a focus on rules and the way to do things. Other part of that martial arts uh, mentality was that baseball or sports should be taken extremely serious, and there was a spiritual element to it. Um, you were honing your spirit when you practiced, both to become a better player, but also for your development as a player. Um, many of the Japanese felt that to play for money would somehow sully the spirit. It wouldn't be pure anymore. So there was a strong... Um, contingent of Japanese, on the majority actually, who did not want to see professional baseball in Japan. And they tried a few times in the 1920s uh, to play professionally, and it didn't work. And it wasn't until um, after the Babe Ruth tour that they saw, or during the Babe Ruth tour, they saw Ruth and Gehrig and the rest of the team um, as these, I don't know, how do I say this, um, they were so professional they carried themselves so well that they helped break down the prejudice against professional ball players, and that led to the rise of a professional league that was able to make money and be uh, accepted by the baseball establishment and also by the populace. Now, American players did take tours of Japan prior to 1934, and if I remember correctly, those players didn't necessarily behave professionally, correct? <laughs> that sure is correct. <laughs> Um, 
professional players started going over there in, I think it was 1906 or 1907 was the first one. Um, and they would go about every five years or so. And uh, no, there were a couple uh, tours where the players did not behave themselves well. One time in 1920, um, something happened. And we've lost it to time. There's, we couldn't, nobody has found any record about what happened. But there's some sort of letters saying, uh, next time we have a tour, we're going to chaperone them with league officials so those things don't happen again. Mm-hmm. The great embarrassments do not happen again. So you kind of wonder what they did. Um, and then in 1931, um, a team of all-stars went over there. That included uh, Al Simmons and Lou Gehrig. Um, Lefty Grove, a bunch of Hall of Famers. And Japan had just invaded Manchuria only a few weeks before. So tensions between the United States and Japan were extremely high at that time. And the ball players behaved pretty poorly. Um, they made fun of the Japanese on the field. There's one instance where a ground ball was hit to uh, Lefty Grove on the mound. So instead of throwing to first base, he threw to first, third base, and the third baseman threw it across the diamond in time to get the, the runner. Um, when Grove was on the mound, the outfield would sometimes sit down or turn their backs to the field. Um, and the Japanese were deeply insulted by this. And the players also didn't behave themselves off the field. Uh, it carried on a great deal in the hotels, lots of drinking. They once, at one point, were allowed a visit with the Prime Minister of Japan. And uh, something happened, the Prime Minister had to leave his office. But the ball players went around and started stealing things. And they walked off with vases and fountain pens and all sorts of things. Um, so there were a lot of problems in that uh, tour. And actually, when they were organizing the 34 tour, there's a letter coming from the tour organizer to uh, Lefty O'Doul, who was in charge of getting the American players, and said, uh, we don't want back any of the players from 1931, with the exception of Lou Gehrig. So the 1934 players uh, behaved quite well and and were respectful and and really appreciated their their time in Japan what what was the difference you know was it just a matter of personnel or uh, why did they behave so much uh, so much better one was personnel um, when Odul was was asked to pick the team they were he was purposely uh, asked to pick players of uh, gentlemanly like behavior as well as superstars and the other thing that happened was just before they left um, the United States, they, they met in the Vancouver hotel room, the Connie Max hotel room, and Max sat them down and uh, read a letter from Judge Landis, the commissioner of baseball, and told the players that you are more than just ball players. You're going to be ambassadors and diplomats, both for Major League Baseball and for the United States of America. And you need to always be respectful to act as teachers, um, to, to help with the goodwill between our countries. And then Mac finished up with, if anybody can't do that, we want you to get up right now and go home, and we'll pay your expenses back to your hometown. And nobody got up, and apparently Dave Booth finally stood up and you know, picked up his hand to swear and swore an oath that he would uphold uh, the rules and regulations and become an ambassador for the United States. And then all the other team members did the same. Um, so they understood how important this event was to the relationship between the two countries. So Rob, you begin the book with uh, Matsutaro Shoriki, and he was the person who had the idea for bringing not only a team of American players, but the most famous American player, Babe Ruth. So can you give an introduction to uh, Shoriki and explain his reasons for organizing the tour? Shoriki's a fascinating man. Um, he was... Um, like Randolph Hearst, he was um, a newspaper owner who kind of focused on yellow journalism, uh, sensational stories in order to sell his newspaper. But to give you a little bit of background on him, he's a fascinating fellow because he was always willing to take chances. There's a story about when he was a high schooler, and he already was um, a pretty good judo um, practitioner at that time. And his school had another uh, interscholastic event and he was up against a master, even though a kid was a high scorer, he was already a judo master, and nobody could beat him. And Shariki had an idea. Instead of coming out with the usual opening, he would, I think, duck down and do a, a sweeping kick. And it was one of these things that would 
would work only one out of every hundred times. It had complete, relied completely on the element of surprise. And sure enough, Shariki does this, and he kicks the guy's legs out from under him, and he pins the grand champion, um, and he wins the match for the school. And he says in his autobiography that that's how I understood you had to win at life. So everything he does from then on out, he becomes a police inspector, and he rises to the top of the Tokyo police uh, chief, uh, not as Tokyo police chief, but he's, I think, next in line. Um, He's always willing to go out and take gambles. And he does that when he finally um, gets dismissed from the Tokyo Police Department uh, through no real fault of his own. He decides to go into newspaper publishing, and he picks up the Yomiuri newspaper, which is one of the Tokyo dailies, and it's not a very uh, good paper. And he decides he's going to make success at it, and he realizes that what all the newspapers are very serious. What he's going to do is he's going to focus on entertainment and crime, especially sensational crime. And by um, by doing that, he moves up the paper from a bottom paper to the third best paper, or third most selling paper, very quickly. And he's trying in the late 1920s, early 1930s, to figure out ways to move it up from number three to number two or number one. And that's when he and a friend have an idea of bringing in these all-star teams, these baseball teams, sponsoring them, and then covering them in their newspaper with special exclusive interviews um, and using that as an advertising mechanism uh, to sell more papers. And, of course, it worked. Uh, Yomiri newspaper now is the most popular, best-selling newspaper in the entire world. Now, on the American side, and you explain this in the book, there, w- there wasn't much interest initially, um, not only on the part of Ruth but on the part of other players. So what, how, did the, how did the tour eventually come together? It really relied on Lefty O'Doul. Um, for those listeners who don't know, Lefty O'Doul was a two-time batting champion. Um, he's probably the best player not in the Hall of Fame, with the exception of maybe Joe Jackson and Pete Rose. Um, he did not play the prerequisite 10 years in the majors to be eligible for the Hall of Fame, but he was one of the top hitters, and he went on to manage the minor league uh, San Francisco Seals for decades. O'Doul was also extremely popular with other players, a very intelligent man. And uh, he had come over on the 1931 tour, actually, and he made friends with a number of the Japanese executives. And uh, when he went back, the Japanese executives contacted him and said, can you arrange for this tour? And uh, O'Doul used his influence. He was good friends with Ruth and with a lot of the other stars. And uh, he was the one who set up these players, and it took a lot of talking. Um, it, his wife helped, and then his wife talked to uh, Odu's wife, talked to Ruth's wife, and other players' wives, talking about how wonderful it is in Japan, and you get to go through. And just actually, through the 34 tour, uh, most of the players did bring their wives. Um, so he, he did the hard sell, and it worked. Um, at the last minute, though, Ruth decided he didn't want to go. Um, they were just about ready to go, and Ruth had gone, got off the 1934 tour, uh, sorry, 1934 season, which didn't go well for him. And uh, he marched into the Yankees' front office and basically said, I want to be manager of the Yankees. And the Yankees said, no, I'm sorry, no. And he said, well, then I'm not going to be playing for you anymore. And so they had agreed to part ways at the end of 1934. And just before the start of the tour, Ruth was in a depression, and he basically said, I'm not going to go play baseball in Japan. You've got to be kidding me. And um, Satoru Suzuki, one of the organizers, went over to New York and had to convince Babe Ruth to come to Japan. And they met in a barbershop. Ruth was avoiding uh, Suzuki. Suzuki tracked him down to a barbershop and shows up and starts trying to convince him to uh, come to Japan. Ruth is basically, no, no, no. And finally, Suzuki has an idea. He reaches in his briefcase, and he pulls out a poster, and he unfurls this three-by-four-foot poster advertising the tour, and what it shows is Babe Ruth's face, and you can see it on the cover of Bonsai Babe Ruth. Um, Giant picture of Babe Ruth's face announcing the tour, and Ruth apparently just started laughing and was so pleased with this advertising poster that he said, all right, I'll go to Japan, and the tour was able to happen. 
So, so the players arrived. The team was known as the All Americans. They arrive in in Japan in November 1934. So, of course, of course, they had to leave after the end of the the major league season. Can you tell us about the reception they received when they arrived in in Tokyo? Oh, it was unbelievable. Um, the ship comes into the dock, and there's about ten thousand people on the dock waving flags and chanting. Um, after the initial ceremonies, the players go on a private train to Tokyo, and the train pulls into Tokyo Station, and open doors open, and there's no room for the players to get out because there's so many thousands of people on the train platform. So they have to close the door of the train. Police come down and they clear everybody out of the, the train platform so the players can and their bags can come off. Then they go up to the station, and there's thousands there, and they put the players in cars, and they only have to go a couple miles from the train station to the hotel. But it's an open limousine parade, and they estimate that a half million people were lining these few miles to welcome the players. And there's streamers coming down from the tall office building and confetti, and these half million people are waving flags and shouting Banzai Babe Ruth. And uh, it took a couple hours for them to read to go these two miles, and Ruth is in the back of the limousine waving a Japanese flag and an American flag and shouting himself hoarse, and finally, the, the uh, fans just couldn't take it anymore, and they just broke police barriers, and they came in, and they started shaking Ruth's hand, and they just had to stop the parade as Ruth was able to shake people's hands until the police started pushing the cars down the street, because uh, it was too dangerous to actually start the motors back up, and they finally reached the hotel. And that uh, was certainly the highlight of the reception, but all the other games sold out, except for one, I believe. Um, thousands of people would be outside the stadiums if they couldn't get tickets, hoping to catch a glimpse of Ruth. So the reception was absolutely amazing, and the players and the uh, press that accompanied them were just blown away by this. I was going to say, with, with you talking about uh, Ruth shaking hands of people in this parade, uh, I have to say, in reading your book, that, that Babe Ruth really comes across as a, as a striking and even impressive figure. He was, he was clearly a, uh, an international celebrity of, of the highest order, and yet he seemed, to, he seemed to handle his fame well, and he knew he was the main attraction, and, and he really appeared to enjoy playing that part. That's absolutely true. I mean, there's been a strange kind of phenomenon in our country for the last 10 or more years where Babe Ruth is kind of seen as a buffoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's the greatest baseball player of all time. There's no doubt. I mean, you can look at it statistically. You can look at it even monetarily, how much money you know, memorabilia is bringing in today. You can look at it any way you want. He's the greatest. And everybody still knows who Babe Ruth is. If you walk down the streets, people who haven't watched a baseball game for years will know his name. Um, there's a reason for that. He understood what it was to be a superstar. And uh, he was far more intelligent than people like to give him credit for. Uh, he understood baseball and he understood people. Unfortunately, it's fair to say he didn't really understand himself very well. So he would often do things that just didn't make sense and not put his own personal best interests uh, first. But he understood this was an opportunity for himself um, to become an international superstar. But I don't think it was a calculating way. He just um, just enjoyed it. He loved the attention, and he played up to it. And um, it was truly genuine, I think, Mm -hmm. his uh, reaching out to the fans. Another key figure in your book is is Mo Berg, who is one of the the great great characters of American sports history. And uh, and as you say in the book, there's something of um, I don't know if if you'd call it a controversy or a dispute about Berg's activities in in Japan. So can you introduce Mo Berg and explain what what you discovered about him in your research? Okay, um, Mo Berg is a graduate of Princeton, or was a graduate of Princeton graduate of the Sorbonne, and a graduate of Columbia Law School. He's one of the most educated uh, major leaguers of all time, probably. He also had a gift for languages. Uh, it's been exaggerating greatly, saying he could speak 12 languages fluently, which is certainly not the case. Um, but he could speak a number of languages fluently, and he could pick up uh, languages very easily. So he picked up enough Japanese to get by in only a few weeks of being there, and, and studying as well. Um, we know that in 1942, 
Moberg decided to leave baseball and join the OSS, which was uh, the forerunner of the CIA. The issue becomes is there's several questions surrounding Berg in 1934, um, and it really goes down to his behavior. Towards the end of the tour, um, he told his teammates that he didn't feel well and would miss an afternoon game. Teammates go off to the ballpark, and he gets dressed up as a Japanese in Japanese clothes, and he sneaks out of the hotel. He goes to a nearby hospital that has a, a tall tower, climbs the tower in secret, um, and at the top of the tower, he pulls out his movie camera and films the Tokyo skyline, and he emphasizes Mount Fuji, the harbor, and some factories. He then sneaks back into the hotel, and when people, the teammates came back later that evening, they say, what did you do? He said, oh, you know, I was sick. I just lounged around the hotel. And he didn't tell anybody about this until uh, he joined the OSS in 1942, where he brought these films and showed them. And then he didn't tell the general public about uh, what he did that day until the late 1950s. So people, once the story got out that he uh, visited this uh, hospital and took these pictures, people naturally wondered why he would do this. And they knew he became a spy later. So people assumed that maybe he was already a spy in 1934. Um, after all, this was an all-star team. They had one of the greatest baseball teams ever brought together. And Mo Burt was not a great baseball player. He was a backup catcher, and a lot of people wondered why he would be included. So a number of people, uh, Nicholas Davidoff wrote a great book called The Catcher Was a Spy, and he went back through all the evidence he could find in the early 1990s about Mo Berg and whether he was a spy. And I was able to look at a number of declassified papers, um, papers that have been declassified since then, and we found no evidence whatsoever that Moberg worked for the U.S. government in 1934. Um, so we're left with the legitimate question, why would he do this then? And the answer is we don't know. Um, the best answer we can come up with is Moberg was known to be kind of an odd fellow, and maybe during the tour he, he often took out his camera, and if there's a big sign saying no pictures, uh, we know Moberg took pictures. He often enjoyed taking the sign, a picture of the sign saying, do not take pictures under penalty of law. And um, he definitely had some trouble with authority. And we wonder if uh, just the idea of sneaking up there and taking the pictures thrilled him. Maybe he did it for that reason. But the evidence that he wasn't a spy relies on no evidence that he was a spy, plus he held on to these pictures until 1942 when he joined the OSS. If he had been a spy in 1934 working for the United States government, he would have uh, brought the pictures to the people who he worked for um, in 34 when he returned and not kept them. So you have to wonder uh, what he was doing, and we don't know. So I'm presuming you've seen the, the movies he took? Yes. Yes, they do survive. Uh, parts of them survive. Um, most of the movies he took are just street scenes. They're, they're normal tourist shots. Um, there is um, a letter suggesting, I don't remember off the top of my head where the letter was from, but suggesting that he took panoramic um, shots from high places of most of the Japanese cities. So it's possible, you, you could look at it two ways. One is that could be more evidence that he was collecting uh, sensitive data. The other was that he just enjoyed those shots as tourist shots, and that's why he climbed the uh, hospital towers, because that was the best view of Tokyo. All right, well, let's let's turn to the actual the tour and the games. And uh, the games began almost immediately after the, the team's arrival in Japan, and it was it was clear from the start that the American major leaguers were far better than the Japanese teams they played. The the All Americans won games by scores of seventeen to one, ten to nothing, fourteen to nothing, twenty three to four. But the Japanese fans at the game, despite these lopsided scores, uh, actually seemed to be pleased by, by seeing the Americans beat up on the Japanese players. That's actually true. They wanted to go out and see the greatest baseball players of all time. They wanted to see Ruth Gehrig and Fox. Um, and they really wanted to watch Babe Ruth hit his famed home runs. And even 
right away when uh, I think it was the first or second game, Ruth hit two towering drives all the way back to the walls, and the fans were going crazy. And then at the last minute, they fell, they fell down and were caught at the, at the base of the wall. And the fans went, oh. So right away, they really want to see Ruth hit a home run. Um, had the first two games been close, it's possible that the fans would have viewed the rest of the games differently, that they would have been um, rooting for their own players uh, harder, and it would have been a more nationalistic uh, series. But since it became obvious within the first couple of innings that the American players were so superior in skill, um, they really knew that the, the Japanese weren't likely to win more than the game, and actually they didn't win any games. Um, that they really focused on how the American players would do it and looked at the games more as entertainment than as uh, true baseball contests. One of my favorite pictures of fan enthusiasm is when they go uh, when they go to the city of, is it Hakodate, when it appears that the game was going to be re- rained out? Right. So they go up to Hokkaido, which is northern Japan, and um, they don't get it. They don't get a lot of major league tours up there. A lot of times they, they focus on Tokyo and uh, Osaka. So the fans really don't want to miss this game. And it's pouring out there, and it's an icy rain, too. And um, they're afraid the game's going to be canceled. So the nearby fans decide they need to cover the field. They didn't have tarps back then. So they go home, and they start gathering anything they can, pieces of canvas, uh, blankets, quilts, and getting everybody in the neighborhood to come and cover this field, which is dirt, by the way. Most Japanese fields at that time are dirt, not grass, um, so that they can keep it clean and dry. And they did. They covered the field, um, and they kept it in good playing condition so that the players could play the game. So, And and you have a number of stories. They were playing in November, and uh, and the weather was, was, it was winter. Right. Yeah, there's a number of places where the where their fields were frosted. Um, there's no major snow, luckily. I think they had a half inch at one point and melted quickly. Um, but it was just miserable to, to to sit and watch some of these games. And there's one down in southern Japan towards the end, where the only game they're playing down in the island of Kyushu, in the tip of Japan, and it's pouring. I mean, it's absolutely pouring. And this time the field wasn't protected, and the it's like ankle-deep mud. And the outfield seats aren't bleachers. They're just uh, grass. And somehow they got flooded. And there's supposed to be six inches of water just standing in outfield seats. And the players show up, Americans show up, and say, we're not going to play in this. You've got to be kidding. And uh, they look out there, and the stadium is packed. Standing room only. People are standing in this water. They're sitting in this water. Um and getting drenched, and Ruth supposedly said, if they can sit there in this to watch us, we can play through it. And uh, so they play the ball game. Ruth and Garrick and a few other players are playing in a galoshes. And at one time point in the game, it's really coming down hard, so a fan uh, takes his umbrella and hands it to Babe Ruth. And uh, Babe Ruth plays first base, which he often did during this tour, holding a Japanese umbrella over his head. And um, I'm sure many of your uh, listeners have seen this picture. It's probably the, one of the most famous pictures of uh, Babe Ruth and certainly the most famous picture of the 1934 tour. Now, you do discuss in the book the differences between the American and the Japanese styles of play. And at one point in the tour, the American players were asked in an interview uh, to to give their impressions of how the Japanese played the game. So so how were the two teams two teams different in terms of their style of, of baseball? There were a lot of differences. Um, the biggest difference was the way they approached the the game. And I'll, I'll be very brief about this one because this is actually a really long, complicated yeah, uh, yeah. answer. But to be brief, as I mentioned before, the Japanese initially um, approached the game as a martial art. And even by the 1930s, uh, that approach survived in a watered-down way. So practice would emphasize the proper way of doing things and working uh, hard to sharpen your spirit, uh, not necessarily to always sharpen your skill. The Americans would focus more just on the skills and on um, playing the game, game situations. 
But on the field, the game differed too. The Japanese were still kind of uh, punch and judy hitters. They were going for singles. They were doing a lot of bunting, supposedly, uh, moving the runners along. Um, they hadn't really, only a handful of their players really learned how to swing for power. I mean, they were still kind of hitting off the front foot, you know, choking up in the back, trying to place the ball. Where Ruth and the All-Stars are, uh, are using their hips and turning on the ball and really letting it fly and rip. Um, those were the, the biggest differences. And the American ball players were, were actually very complimentary, even though they were winning so easily. One of the things they said over and over again is you can't really compare a player who just came out of college where they play a dozen games, and then maybe they go in the summer leagues and they play 20 or 30 games uh, throughout the entire summer, and they get maybe, what, 150 at-bats per year. You can't compare that to a major leaguer who has 500-plus major league bats plus several hundred more exhibition bats every single year. So just the amount of practice uh, the two teams had were, were incredibly different. And um, a lot of the ball, American ball players thought that if, they, if there were certain Japanese players that had a great deal of talent and they could have become professionals in the States had they had the opportunity to really practice the way the major leaders do. I was going to ask that as my as my next question. Did the Japanese team have have players who were at at the quality of a professional player in the states? They had one pitcher uh, named A. G. Salamora. He was um, 17 years old at the time of the tour. He had just come out of high school. He actually didn't graduate because by joining the team and playing against professionals, he was kicked out of school. Um, and at one game, he pitched almost five no-hit innings and eventually lost the game one to nothing when Gary hit a home run. And uh, he became a hero, a national hero, because of this game. And he was good. Um, Connie Mack supposedly offered him the chance to come back and, and uh, enter the uh, minor league system with the Philadelphia Athletics. And um, Salamora thought about it for no more than a day and said, no, I, I need to stay in Japan. Um, he was probably the only true prospect um, that the Americans saw. The other players who were good um, were older. There was another pitcher named Date who actually pitched better than Salamora um, during the tour. But he was, um, you know, I don't know his age offhand, but I would say his late 20s by that time at least, maybe even 30. And... Um, so he was too old to, to really join the minor leagues and, and work his way up at that point. But none of the hitters uh, showed themselves to be really outstanding. Mm -hmm. In my reading of the book, it seems to me that uh, Sawamura's pitching performance in that in that particular game is is the centerpiece of of the book. And and so, what is the significance of that one game for Japanese baseball? The American teams up until Salamora's game on November 20th, 1934. The American teams had dominated. Um, only one American team had ever lost against a Japanese team, and I think that happened in 1922. Uh, Wade Hoyt, the Hall of Famer, was a losing pitcher, but everybody basically agrees the game was thrown by the Americans because uh, tendons started to dwindle, and so they wanted to keep uh, interest alive in that, in that tournament. Um, so the Americans are pounding the Japanese in 31 and in 34, and Salamora pitches that one one nothing game. And it gave the Japanese hope um, that their players could eventually be on par with the American players. Um, so for baseball fans, it was really important. There was an article written the next morning saying, we can now envision the true World Series in the not-far future. But the game took on a greater um, meaning as time went on, because as I mentioned before, uh, diplomatic tensions between the United States and Japan were very tense, and of course we had World War II only seven years later. And as tensions grew after the tour, um, people started looking at Sawamura as a hero of Japan, and he ended up joining the Japanese infantry and doing uh, three tours 
of duty, uh, one against the United States in the Philippines and one in China. Um, his last one was going to uh, the Philippines when he died. Um, and he became a symbol of what it was like to be Japanese during the war. Um, the game became symbolic of being able to beat the Americans at their own game, um, which also, of course, applied to military matters. And he became upheld as the perfect Japanese citizen because here he was a superstar, baseball um, celebrity, but he gave up that life to go serve as a private in the Japanese army, um, the way the propagandists would point out every Japanese should do. They should put the Japanese country before their own personal concerns. So in a way, Salomon was a great pitcher. Um, but his importance over time, I think, has actually been increased because he became such a symbol. Um, after the war, he died, as I mentioned before, he died during the war. Um, so after the war, he became kind of a symbol of what might have been, um, of waste, a few waste of human life during the war. So not the military, but the people, the anti-war people, kind of looked at him uh, in sadness and say, "What a what an amazing waste! Here's our greatest pitcher of all time killed for uh, military expansion." So he, his life took on a separate meaning, and so. Even today, he's considered one of the greatest Japanese pitchers of all time. He's on a postage stamp. There's statues about him. The annual award for best pitchers called the Salomura Award. But when you look at the stats, he's not the best pitcher of his time. And I find that uh, very interesting. I want to step back and, and look at the broader context of, of the tour. And, and throughout the book, you, you seamlessly include asides and, and whole sections that give a picture of Japanese society and, and social norms of the time. And uh, do, do you have a sense of what the American players found most surprising? What were the episodes where they had the, the greatest culture shock? Um, there were really two. The first one was not what you'd expect. It was that Tokyo was a modern city. I don't know what they they expected. I think they most of these guys probably hadn't done a lot of travel reading, and they saw the Orient as being this mysterious backward place, and so they were shocked when they show up in Tokyo and they see modern trains and streetcars and thousands of people dressed in Western clothing going to work, luxury apartment uh, buildings and department stores with all sorts of goods. Um, they're really surprised, and, and they love it. And hotels, of course, are first rate. Um, so that's one thing. Um, they were really surprised about how modern Tokyo was. The other thing uh, was have to do with cultural norms is at the time, there was a um, different attitude towards personal space and, uh, and nudity even. And there were several times where the ball players would be dressing um, and women would walk in. And uh, this this shocked them no end, and they, so much that they wrote about it in, in newspapers uh, and were told reporters back home, because at the time, um, if you went to a Japanese public bath, the people who served the bath, who worked there, whether they be women or men, would walk around the, the two sections. It was a woman's section and a male section, but they would go back and forth to replace things, to fix things, and it wasn't considered a big deal by anybody. But to the Americans, it, it was quite the big deal, and they were, got very embarrassed. Um, so that's something that comes up a couple times in the book from reading the players' letters home. Following up on that question then about culture shock, it, it seemed to me that the American players were quite appreciative, even, even moved by their time in Japan. Absolutely. All the players wrote back um, either through letters, through their diaries, or when they returned home through interviews about how wonderful Japan was and how wonderful the Japanese people were. And um, Connie Mack was extremely taken with Japan and gave speech after speech about the close ties between the United States and Japan. And he had a famous quote, there will never be a war between the United States and Japan. And they based that on how wonderfully they were received and what they saw, what they thought they saw was general affection, and it might have been for the ball players. Um, and remember, if you have a half a million people waving Japanese and American flags together uh, to welcome them. So when they left, 
in December 1934, the consensus was from everybody, the press on both sides of the Pacific, the ball players, that the tour was a wonderful goodwill mission, completely successful, that it had forestalled a possible war, um, certainly um, helped mend uh, difficult stress ties, um, that things were ready to be uh, to get the two countries back together again. And, uh, of course, that didn't happen. Um, a few weeks after the uh, ballplayers left, uh, Japan decided to leave the League of Nations. Um, a number of months, about three months after the ballplayers left, a group of uh, right-wing ultranationalists attempted to assassinate Matsutaro Shiriki, the owner of the Yomiuri newspaper and tour organizer. Um, the reason they gave for the uh, assassination attempt. They they came very close, by the way. The assassination was they uh, one one of these right wing thugs uh, stalked Shariki, pulled out a samurai sword and tried to decapitate him, and he just missed. He put in a huge gash in the Shariki's skull, um, and he was arrested. And the reason for the attack, he said, because uh, Shariki had defiled the Emperor Meiji by uh, allowing the ball players to play in the. Uh, Meiji Jingu Stadium, which is named in his honor. And things, of course, spiraled out of control from there. Japan invaded China in 37, and we had Pearl Harbor in 31. So the tour in the short, short term really did nothing to help uh, Japanese-American relations. And in your closing chapter, you, you talk about the reactions among the American players to, to Pearl Harbor. And the one person I want to ask about is, is Babe Ruth. He, he reacted quite strongly to the Japanese attack. Babe Ruth um, loved Japan. He loved the reception he got there. He spoke very fondly about it um, during the 1930s. So when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he actually took it personally. Um, he saw it as maybe a failure of, uh, of the tour. And uh, he got so angry. He's in his apartment, Riverside Drive in Manhattan. I think it was on the 12th floor, 15th floor. That's about pretty high up. Um, he throws open the living room window, and his wife Claire had decorated the living room with their um, souvenirs from Japan. They're beautiful vases, um, plates, wonderful stuffed dolls. And he starts storming around the living room, picking things up, yelling about the Japanese, and throwing it out the window onto Riverside Drive, you know, 10 plus stories below, shattering these things. And uh, Ruth, um, Claire Ruth is apparently running around, like watching him, seeing where his eyes go, and running in front of him and grabbing these vases and pulling him into the bedroom so he doesn't break all these really valuable art that they bought. Next morning after he's done his temper tantrum, he goes out and he starts um, raising war bonds for the war effort. And he bought $100,000 worth of war bonds himself. And he even did things like go door to door. I don't know how many doors he actually knocked on, but uh, there are no articles about Ruth going out door to door uh, trying to raise money for the war effort. So he really did his part um, because he was so incensed by Pearl Harbor after the reception he received in '34. In the coda to your book, though, you you discuss how after the war, baseball again becomes something beneficial uh, for Japanese-American relations. And in particular, you talk about the work of, of Lefty O'Doul. Exactly. Um, it almost comes full circle, because Lefty O'Doul, despite Pearl Harbor, still has many friends in Japan and still has really strong, warm feelings for Japan. And I guess he understood more about Japan than any of the other players. He had been back a number of times. He had helped sponsor some of the Japanese teams coming to the United States. And uh, he understood that not all Japanese were alike. There were those who, who went to war willingly, those who organized the war, and there were those many millions who did not want to go to war but were forced to. And most, many of them were his friends, or should I say his friends were among them. Um, so O'Doul in 1946 uses his own money to travel to Japan. He gets special permission by the Allied um, Occupation Army to come over, and he locates as many of the ballplayers as he could and many of the organizers, and he helps restart Japanese baseball. They had uh, their first few games in the fall of 1945, right after the surrender, and then they restarted the league in 46. And uh, the O'Doul 
um, works closely with Sotaro Suzuki, who he helped organize the 34 tours, and some other people to use baseball in Japan to help rebuild morale. And also because it's being sponsored by the American um, occupying forces, to use it as a bridge between the two countries again. And uh, eventually in 1949, he brings the San Francisco Seals to Tokyo and actually to Japan in general. And the reception is amazing. And once again, there's hundreds of thousands of people lining the street to welcome them. And uh, the SEALs go out of their way. They, they give a lot of the gate receipts to orphanages. Uh, they have one giant game where you had to be under 15 to be allowed in, and it was free. Um, and so the support for the SEALs get from the Japanese and the support they gave back to Japan really does a lot to mend relations um, in 1949. All right. So in the in the main thread of of American baseball history, this is this tour is something of a you know a romantic, colorful story. How is the 1934 tour viewed in Japanese baseball history? Well, it's very important um, because the 34 tour allowed for professional baseball to get started in Japan um, by engaging those many millions of people who followed uh, the 34 tour and um, started subscribing to the Omiuri newspaper, um, there was now uh, the fan base had been increased. And as I mentioned before, the kind of prejudice for against a professional team um, diminished. So Shariki decided to keep the All Nippon team together and they were renamed the Yomiuri Tokyo Giants, and uh, they traveled to the United States in 1935 and 36 uh, to Barnstorm, um, mostly to, to get experience. And in 1936, uh, the, the professional league in Japan starts. Um, the, the Tokyo Giants do very well, and they continue to do well today. Um, so the beginning of professional baseball you, is often if, if when they hold their anniversaries, they, they count it to 1934 as the start of Japanese professional baseball. So every student of Japanese ball uh, knows about the importance of the tour and know, knew that Babe Ruth was, in a way, the one who kicked it off. So, Rob, we're almost out of time. What are you, what are you working on now? What's your next project? The next book is... Um, about the first Japanese to play in the major leagues. Uh, his name is Masanori Murakami. He played for the San Francisco Giants in 1964-1965. And it's a fascinating story because Murakami came over in 64 as a 20-year-old minor leaguer in Japan, and he was really on an exchange trip. Um, the idea was to send three minor Japanese minor leaguers to the American minor leagues so that they could brush up on their baseball skills. Um, but Murakami did exceptionally well in the minor leagues. And in September 30 of 64, uh, the San Francisco Giants were in the middle of a pennant race, and they needed another left-handed reliever. They were about this kid Murakami. And so they call him up to the big leagues from double, from single A, I'm sorry. And uh, he pitches a number of games for the Japanese, uh, I'm sorry, for the San Francisco Giants, and does wonderfully well. And he had to sign a major league contract to get, uh, to be able to pitch for the Giants. And uh, this causes an international controversy because he's still under contract with the uh, team in Japan. And so this is a story about how this 20-year-old kid, and you have to remember, he's a, he's a big boy at that point, only 20. Hasn't been in college. He barely speaks English, only a few words. What it's like to come to Japan by himself, what, for what he th come from Japan to the United States by himself, for what he thinks is uh, an exchange trip and ending up in the minor, in the major leagues, um, and underneath this focus of an international dispute. So we're just starting now. Um, I'm hoping to meet with uh, Mr. Murakami uh, in the next few months in Japan and uh, start the interview process. All right, very good. And, and you're still on the hunt for Japanese baseball cards. <laughs> yep, there's still some I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Rob Fitz about his book, Bonsai Babe Ruth, Baseball, Espionage and Assassination during the 1934 Tour of Japan, published in 2012 by the University of Nebraska Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, 
which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from pop culture to political science. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.